At Freedom HealthWorks, we're focused on putting medical professionals back in control of their practices. Utilizing a structured, tailored approach to business, startup, and operations, it could make sense for you to work with our professional team to avoid expensive pitfalls and, more importantly, expedite your journey to success. As we all know, time is money. If you're involved in the practice of medicine and desire to practice free of headaches and constraints, reach out for a no-obligation consultative conversation. Call us today at 317-804-1203 or visit freedomhealthworks.com. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Healthcare Americana. I am your host, Christopher Habig, CEO and co-founder of Freedom HealthWorks. Healthcare Americana is a podcast for the 99% of people who get healthcare in America. We're not clinicians or policymakers. We're patients, we're caregivers, executives, and advocates. We're really fed up with the status quo and have a desire to change it. This podcast brings listeners backstage at innovative organizations with innovative individuals across America that are putting patients first by delivering exceptional care to anyone and everyone. For anyone who's interested in politics, which is, I'm going to pause right there as people kind of nod their head and it's pervasive in our daily lives at this point in time. When we talk about healthcare reform, one hot topic that always comes up is pharmaceutical pricing. How do we reform our medications and still encourage innovation and new technologies and new drugs to abound within the American pharmaceutical sector? To answer, help me answer this question and to, to discuss a little bit about it of what we see out there. Please welcome Pana Sharma, CEO of Lantern Pharma. Pana, it's a pleasure to speak with you today. Thanks for joining us here on Healthcare Americana. All right, thanks for having me on. Look forward to talking to you about uh, drug pricing and some of the ideas and experiences we have. And we're going to jump right into it because that's a that's a heavy, heavy topic. And multiple administrations uh, in Washington have set out on a course to say, look, we're going to go and do this, or we're going to go and do that. And we're going to drive prescription drug costs down for the people who need it most. We really don't see a lot of improvement. Now, what you guys are doing there at Lantern Pharma is something a little bit more special from the specifically the cancer side of it. But I think the question still applies to what your experience has, has seen. You know, where are we with these drug reform ideas that have been pervasive in the past few decades in politics? I think, Chris, you're right, especially in the last few years. Um, it's very important that people have access to drugs, especially cancer drugs, in a way that removes financial toxicity and also removes the excessive healthcare burden that it presents. But at the same time, we also have to note that drugs don't account for the majority of the spend in healthcare. So, you know, we're living in an era where healthcare workers barely can get, you know, above minimum wage, yet hospital CEOs are raking in 10 to $50 million. So there's toxicity at other levels that needs to be targeted. Specifically in drug pricing, this is a very important thing for me because I part of why I joined Lantern Pharma as I did feel through both personal experience and through hearing from lots of patients that their number one concern when they got cancer wasn't the cancer itself. For many patients, it was a financial burden that they were leaving on themselves or their loved ones and families. And so that really, really hit home, you know, because I was really focused on innovating, trying to create new ways to understand drugs and cancer and almost and not thinking about cost and pricing. And so when we had all this data now available, genomic data, and we could start doing things faster, I thought, 
you know what, our mission should be to bring together all this data and use techniques that every industry has used to crush pricing, housing, retail, clothing, financial services, media, you name a sector, it's been transformed by data and AI. And it's because the unit costs have been crushed. You know, so we were going from unit costs for, you know, you know, the clothes that we're wearing of X down to 0.2 X or 0.5 X. And so ultimately the consumers benefit. And so in same with drug development, it's one of the few industries where we haven't actually attacked, why does it take one to $3 billion to make it a drug? And it's gone up. So AI and data present an opportunity for us to take this and take it from a decade and one to $3 billion and take it down to maybe five years and maybe half a billion, maybe 250 million, maybe a hundred million. And so even in our own experience, we're seeing that we believe that through the use of data, through the use of improved kind of value and biomarker driven medicine, we can take the product development cycle, cut it by half, and we can take the cost and cut it by nearly 70%. So who benefits? The healthcare system, and more importantly, patients, because patients need more drugs and affordable drugs. And so I think healthcare pricing is important. I think drug pricing is even more important, but I do feel like there's an almost a, an artificial bat being taken. And I don't think that government intervention ever is the number one answer. Yes, sometimes for major issues, it, it, it can be, but we're living in an era where the people who are gonna suffer on drug pricing control and cancer are gonna be, un unfortunately, cancer patients because pharma companies, including those in your backyard, including those out of New York and New Jersey and other big metro areas, they're going to find ways to game the system. Absolutely. And, and I, I like that you hit that right on because, you know, it, it always seems to me like this is the boogeyman, you know, coming from the feds are saying, well, we need to drive the prices down and we're going to do this on pharmaceuticals. And then the other side is saying, well, okay, we can pick on them, but they've been regulated no, not necessarily out of the market, but they've been regulated to make things very, very expensive. You mentioned the development cycle, FDA hurdles, all that kind of stuff. And it's like- I think the FDA is good. I think you know we're a gold standard in terms of safety. So I think yeah. we should invest more in the FDA. I do think that anything that puts a thumb on innovation is challenging for two very important reasons today, it, you know, especially healthcare Americana. Number one, it makes it more challenging for startups like ourselves, Republic, but it's still startup nature to gain access to capital because VCs and private equity firms will say, well, your end market used to be X, now it's 0.2X, right? Mm -hmm. I can argue all I want, but they're gonna say, well, look, you can't make much, much money, you got drug pricing issues. So we're gonna make capital a lot more expensive or we're not gonna give it to you. Second, and this is very timely, this past year was the first year where new INDs that were filed by Chinese companies for drugs was greater than the US. Wow. So we're living in an era now where we may not be the leaders in medicine innovation. And that's a hard pill for anyone to swallow. So we need to really focus on what can we do to drive innovation. We should be giving tax incentives for companies that can do things at half the cost or half the price. We should be driving legislation to bring generics and biosimilars back to the United States for manufacturing. We should drive tax incentives for bringing on the right kind of jobs to do that work here and not in other countries. And most importantly, one of the most important under talked about things is that nearly 50% of medicines today get their start from the National Institutes of Health or the NCI. Those are taxpayer funded groups. Not that you know I want their hand in my pocket, but 
many venture capitalists that I've talked to say, you know what, if you don't have an NCI grant, you're less likely to be funded because that's a great stamp of approval for us. Well, it's such a great stamp of approval, but the NCI never gets any benefit for the citizens. So why not create an incentive where medicines that have been funded by the NCI are either they take an equity stake and that goes into a pool of medicine dollars available for Medicare and Medicaid or the upside. Imagine if we had the up, had upside in Moderna. Imagine if we had upside in Celgene acquired by BMS. Imagine if we have upside in all these great cancer drugs and that went back into a pool to help fund medicines. These are the right kind of incentives we should be talking about. Not just, hey, I'm going to take a hammer and smash and give it to some czar who's going to dictate pricing. Uh, that I think is categorically not the right answer and just takes a very blunt instrument to a very complicated problem. Interesting. Uh, it's from the public-private partnership there. I want to come back to that, but I want to focus on something you just said you know, a couple of minutes ago about Chinese companies filing more innovation in new drugs than American companies for the first time. I mean, what's the rationale behind that? What's the reasoning? Why are they able to do that? And we're either stagnating or declining. Um, I don't think we're stagnating or declining. It's just, you know, it's just the law of numbers. You know, they have a lot more PhDs coming out of their universities. They've got three, four times the population and they have a top-down directive to control biological sciences. So mm -hmm. you look at the funding that they get from their governments and you look at the funding that their universities have gotten over the last 10 years and you look at the number, sheer number of PhDs coming out. I mean, I think the United States does a great job given the number of people and other things. But when you hear people doing the uh, saber rattling about immigration and saber rattling about every other topic, it's, it's, uh, it's challenging. And so we spend a lot of our time, I think, on the wrong topics. But mm -hmm. I think this country and the graduates are doing a wonderful Yeah, I think we're doing a wonderful job in, in, in a very challenging environment. And I think we continue to out-innovate in many measures. You know, even a lot of the innovations that are coming out of China and um, are, you know, they started about 10 years ago, actually, when we started seeing the first wave of kind of innovative medicines. And now we're seeing truly innovative medicines. I mean, totally new stuff as opposed to fast followers. There are a lot of fast follower companies that were creating like the next tweak, better version of like kinase inhibitors, next tweak, better version of T-cell therapies, you know, basically taking a playbook out of a leading company here and doing two or three versions of them. Yeah. Um, and, you know, that's okay. You know, even, you know, if you're a sports enthusiast, even, you know, rarely do you have the geniuses, but even sports guys who end up being great at, you know, they always have some model they follow, right? I want to be like Jordan, or I want to be like Tom Brady, or they follow all the details of this picture, you know, and if you have enough of them, they get really good on their own right. And so that's what's happened in China. We've had a lot of, we've had a decade of fast followers, We've had a lot of great graduates, and that's now opened up, I think, a, a season of innovation there that's unparalleled just because of the sheer numbers they have. Yeah. So taking what is already existing and make it potentially the best version of that, but never taking the leap to actually create something new. And that's what we're seeing for the first time. Yeah, we're seeing that for the first time. And, and I think we'll continue seeing that. And that puts added pressure on um, countries like US and Germany. And, you know, it, it's no you know, it's no accident that the top two vaccines came out of the U.S. and Germany, right? Mm -hmm. So BioNTech and Moderna, you know, they will continue to lead in innovation. But also it's very important for your listeners to note that the reason those companies came up with it, these were companies that weren't even heard of before the COVID. And both companies started their backgrounds actually in cancer, not infectious disease. And both the companies use genetics and both companies use computational approaches to creating their 
understanding of virology. So computational virology, genomics, totally new manufacturing, and these companies now obviously have helped us with the pandemic significantly. But those same trends will occur in every sector of medicine, our ability to create medicines faster and potentially cheaper. Now, interesting to note that taxpayers aren't going to going to get any upside from Moderna's stock going from 10, 20 bucks to whatever it is now, close to 300, you know, but should they? You know, you go should, back to the public partnership aspect of it. You know, it, it's fascinating. Yeah. And I'm sure that Stephen Van Stel would say no, but you know, he was rejected by Merck. He was rejected by every pharma company. No one would partner with him. That's also to me a very striking note. Like here the pharmas are supposed to be hallmarks of innovation, yet they wouldn't partner with Moderna. They allowed the federal government to bail them out. So, you know, we, we, we have a saying in startups that, you know, if the bigger companies did everything perfectly, there'd be no room for us. You're right. But, you know, when you live in an ecosystem of medicine where you're not trying to create a better Yeti cooler or a better hat, but you're creating, you know, therapies that are going to change real life, you know, not social media, you would think that there would be an ecosystem that has a higher set of ideals to adhere to. And uh, that's something that we need to be more mindful of. So pharma is its own worst, worst, worst PR agent. When you're spending more on lobbying and executive pay than you are on R&D, when you're spending more on stock buybacks to inflate your EPS, that's a problem. And so then they sit there and cry to the federal government about track drug pricing. Well, you guys are the ones that brought this up and you're going to ruin the entire ecosystem. And ultimately, the people that get punished the most are people who can't afford drugs already because the ones who can't afford it are going to continue affording it. I think that brings us to a great segue. So give us, give us the uh, synopsis of Lantern Pharma and where you were brought in as professional management to really take Lantern to the next level. Sure. So Lantern Pharma, one of the things that attracted me was, again, in my prior job as a, as a public company CEO to another biotech, I saw the financial hardships firsthand from cancer patients. I spent a lot of my time actually in hospital centers and also actually with pharma helping them develop drugs, cancer drugs specifically. And I saw the disconnect between innovation and what ended up in the clinics. And so I thought there had to be a better way. And as I looked at, you know, drug prices, ultimately, I thought there's no way we can continue to afford cancer drugs that are 300 to 500,000. And of course, as you know, and your audience knows, AI and data has transformed every industry. And it was finally beginning to transform pieces of drug development. I thought it would be great if I can really lead a company that's doing this. And I had a lot of very specific ideas. And so I, you know, talked and uh, interviewed, you know, a number of the leading companies in the space. I really liked Lantern. The VCs there knew me uh, from my past career, and I happen to know them really well. I liked them a lot. And um, I networked with the board over a few months, and then they brought me in in Q4 of 18. I took the company public in in, um, 2020 during the pandemic. That was quite interesting. And we raised about $100 million, and now we're off to the races to develop our drugs. And part of our mission is to make it reduce the cost. And, you know, I'm always mindful of telling people that, you know, we want to do this faster and cheaper. That is part of what our model should be, because drugs shouldn't cost half a million to a million dollars. And they, more importantly, they shouldn't take a decade. And so we can do this. And there's a whole, not just us, there's a handful of companies that are using AI and big data to crush this, these product development cycle cost issues. And that was what I was going to ask, you know, why are you able to do this so nimbly, faster, more cost effectively than what a, one of the big boys is able to do? 
Well, Big Pharma, as I, as I tell people, their job is not to innovate. Their job is to acquire and control supply chains and protect their revenue streams. So if you ask the CEOs, their job is to, you know, we're, we're making hundreds of millions or some cases billions of dollars from is existing therapies that have already been approved and they were made without AI and they were made the old, maybe the, so I, you know, I don't blame them. I just think that's just the way it is. You know, they have large organizations whose focus is different. That's why virtually every innovation in cancer uh, with the exception of PDL one has come from acquisition. Even PDL one came from acquisition. And actually it's interesting. It's one of the most successful cancer drugs recently across a number of cancers, but even that was on the shelf of Merck for several years before someone else published something, they said, wait a second, we have one of those drugs. Let's try it out. So they're not good stewards of innovation. You know, and, Just sitting and, on the shelf, huh? Just sitting up there and saying, oh, hey, somebody else did it. We have one of those too. That's amazing. No, well, they didn't know they had acquired it. So Merck acquired Sharing Plow, which was a medicinal com- chemistry company, great company. Sharing Plow had acquired Organon, which is a company out of Europe. And Organon had created the PDL1 antibody, which I don't know if your listeners know, but PDL1 is an immunotherapy, Keytruda, breakthrough drug in a number of cancers. Only a few overexpressed PDL1. And so the scientists at Organon had developed a PDL1 antibody that they thought could help with the cascade of events in cancer. And so when Sharing Plow, which is a chemistry company, acquired Organon for the chemistry, the antibody didn't, they didn't understand antibodies. So they shelved it. They said, we, you know, we're, we can't even, even if we get the drug approved, we're not going to be able to make the antibody because we're not an antibody manufacturer. So they shelved it. When Merck acquired Sharing Plow, they acquired it for the revenue and sales force, not for the library of content. And so as it moved over to Merck, people, many people at Merck didn't even know they had it. But when a very seminal paper came out talking about PD-1 cascade and PDL one I believe it was from either BMS or AstraZeneca, someone at Merck said, we have one of those. And this was like, three oh, hey, by the way, uh, we got one of those just sitting in storage over here. Yeah. So again, going back to stewards of innovation, it's not, you know, their job was to protect revenue. So if someone had said, hey, we just spent $200 million in PDL1 and an investor asked them, well, for what? And they're like, well, it's an experimental new thing. They, you know, they would have been skewered maybe, right? So it is a very tough business. Like every business that was, it would be fun. Um, but I think the ultimate thing on drug pricing, going back full circle, is that mm-hmm. Companies like us have to take the risk. We have to do it cheaper and better because it's the only way. We have to succeed because there is no billion-dollar revenue stream that I can just sit on. And that's number one. Number two, our culture is very different. Our molecular biologists and genomic scientists and data scientists all talk together. It's a multidisciplinary team from day one. We're not taking silos and saying, hey, take your lead molecular biologist and your lead bioinformatics and your diet and go create this summit somewhere in the middle of the mountain and go figure out how to do stuff. Well, they're not going to do it after 15 years of not working together. Right. In a year just to figure it out. Right. So, right. Yeah. And I love the approach, you know, collaboration from day one. Be nimble, be flexible, right? And uh, go where the big boys ain't going. Like you mentioned, going going back to the pricing aspect of like we're talking about at the beginning of it, you highlighted what makes Lantern special. Going back to federal initiatives, we hear a lot of talk about, you know, 2022, they're going to really start hitting healthcare in the Biden administration. You know, price controls, we hear that. I'm kind of like you saying, well, you know, this isn't going to address the fundamental problem. What is your view on, you know, really specifically some of the proposals that we've heard coming out of Washington? And I guess the, the, the bottom line is, 
are those proposals actually going to save Medicare and make it solvent again, you know, before it goes bankrupt in the next anywhere from two to 10 years? Oh, that's a great question. I mean, I think that's not an easy answer. Honestly. Uh, it's, a, it's really challenging. I mean, I think one, you know, we shouldn't be paying more in this country for our own drugs and countries like England or Germany or Canada. I think that is a problem there needs to be addressed. But, you know, again, those are one payer systems. So should we move to something like that? I don't, I don't know. I don't think that's a clear answer. But if you take a look at cancer drugs, the out-of-pocket in the U.S. is in line with what it is in other countries, advanced countries. It is higher in many other disease areas. The formularies are much larger here, but I don't think the drug pricing should be controlled just by one czar unless, you know, it, unfortunately, like many things, it always comes down to people. If we get the right person, they put the right structures, you know, I would go after very, very specific things. One thing I would look at is what drugs have increased the most over the last five-year period in prices or over the last one-year period and why. And so if there's no good answer, then I would squash those prices. And I would take a look at the top 20 drugs that Medicare Part B and Part D, which I think is part of the legislation, pays for. And is it substantially higher than other countries? And why? And what is our per unit cost on those drugs? And how do we negotiate those, especially if they're not innovative drugs? Out of the top 12 or so drugs that Medicare Part B and Part D pays for, I think only three, if I remember correctly, only three or four are cancer drugs. And um, there probably is room for better pricing. But the challenge is then, is that pricing going to go on to be lower in the system? Because oftentimes the system will negotiate its own pricing through bulk purchases, stuffing the pipe, discount systems, all that. And so will the government pricing actually really be better? That's a question I have. I'm not sure. So we're going to spend all this time on pricing. And then if someone's out of network, then the price increases by 4X anyway, right? So something that may cost you, you know, 30 bucks on a copay and cost, you know, cause it costs the healthcare system $6,000. Maybe if you're out of network or in the wrong insurance plans, it goes to 24,000 in copay of 500. Mm-hmm. You know, how do you avoid those kind of moments? And I'm not sure that fixes this, you know, one czar to drive pricing fixes it. I think it fixes it in a nice spreadsheet, but I'm not sure that the benefits will trickle down to everyday patients. And that's the challenge I have. Mm-hmm. The reason countries like Germany and England, some of the other countries I mentioned, maybe can do it is the one payer system. I certainly don't want to suggest that we move to a one payer system, but it's, it certainly is easier to say, okay, we picked a price and that's it. We can and that's it. what, in my opinion, is lacking. It is we say, well, we don't like what we have right now, even though we are 80% of the way to a single payer system right now. We have you know, kind of more of an oligarchy than anything. No, we're not. We're not. eighty percent. But where are the market-based ideas and innovations coming out of here? You know, if we have four large payers plus the government who has sixty percent of it. Yeah, that's about right. Sixty percent plus. There's a lot of people controlling the vast majority of the dollars. Bottom line, and that's well, what, you know, and that's yeah, more of a rhetorical question: is where are these market-based principles coming from? Where there are no, there are no market-based principles. You have capital. Right. And then on top of that, you have states that might say, well, we're not going to accept Medicare pricing because we want to do pricing on our own, or we don't want the government dictating pricing. We want our good old boys or CEOs of XYZ insurance companies headquartered in our state. We want them to dictate pricing. And that's my biggest lament coming from these discussions is 
Well, we can't look at government to save everything here because it's kind of the reason why we got into this mess in the first place, according to a lot of people will sympathize with that. And yeah, like you said, is why are the prices in the US so much higher than overseas? And I don't have a good answer for that, Pana. I, I'm just kind of I think, I think lamenting the, the, the fact, I guess. We have too many bureaucrats and too many administrative people looking at pricing. You know, how many people look at the price of a drug and talk, create all these spreadsheets and formularies and systems. We have all these people, all this infrastructure, but how many doctors do we really have prescribing it? That ratio is wrong. It's just wrong. Interesting. Interesting. So well, going along those lines, yes, yeah, expand upon that line of thinking real quick. Well, even, even there, I mean, why don't we use, you know, what the financial services industry has used? Why don't we use technology and databases to say, okay, here's what a, a reasonable market-based pricing for all these drugs could be. We can even have competitions among all the great quant jocks, of which there are so many. You get rid of hundreds and maybe thousands of useless jobs where people are tallying up stuff and spreadsheets and doing stuff like, oh, well, we're doing value-based care. Based on what? You're going to sit around in meetings pontificating about value-based care and taking spreadsheet dumps from your local insurance company and third-party administrators. I've been to so many of these meetings. and I mean, it is it is useless. Get rid of all the jobs. I don't get votes though. That's not a that's not a popular campaign headline. Well, then we're going to be stuck with bloated healthcare costs. We, we have too many administrative and too many bureaucrats, not enough actually people doing the work. Either you're making the drug or you're delivering the drug or you're someone understanding how the drug gets used in patients. End of story. Everything else, we should automate it. Amen. I'm right there with you. That's all I'm kind of laughing here saying. You know what? Good for you. You're going outward. You know, you're not going to see any politician or anybody from Washington or even anybody from the farm industry say something like that either. So well, I, I mean, appreciate it. I listen to these people and say, well, how many of them actually knows how a drug gets made? Sure. Here they're telling us about drug pricing. Very few know how a drug gets gate. Some of them actually know something about the patient population. And then tell me the first three steps you would take. They should talk about drugs that have a ridiculous pricing. You know, we all we hear about these pharma bros and all that. And I agree, those guys should be put in, you know, they should be put in some kind of civil penalty box, maybe criminal. But yes, but those should be, those should be done quickly and swiftly. If there's no reason to take a vitamin D pill and go from, you know, three bucks a pill to 600 bucks a pill, then yes, your company should be under investigation. That That is horrible. Yeah. There's yeah. no reason to say that, you know, now companies that are creating innovative new sets of drugs that our cost of capital should go from 14% to 50%. That's going to ruin innovation in this country. Mm-hmm. And that's why I think the issue is this blunt force approach, but it wins points because people like to hear that pharma is being put in a penalty box because of the own views that we've had. And I'm not sure that with all the great things companies like BioNT and Moderna have done is enough to get big pharma out of that penalty box I think companies like Merck have done tremendous amounts in innovation. You know, they've acquired great antibody drug conjugate companies. They've acquired next generation of targeted drugs like HIF-2A agonists. They've done great work and continuing to repeat PDL one in multiple cancer categories. But, you know, unfortunately that innovation doesn't equal to points. Mm-hmm. You know, people think about Purdue Pharma, right? Yes. All, and Purdue Pharma is never even a pharma. They're a narcotics supplier. Right. And so, um, we, we just Those have bad a, actors, right? Well, they were not bad. They, they were just not pharma companies, but yet the FDA for you know a decade allowed them to exist. So, I think there's been enough change, but not really enough because I think we should have some automated way to look at pricing and not make it into a big deal. It's like you know we have databases and AI systems that can look at drug pricing real time. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. If there is an increase 
Is it supply chain related? Is it cost-based related? Is it reduction population related? If it doesn't meet certain flags, let's have a discussion with the executives. Ask why pricing? Because it's going to, you know, is it out of, you know, is it out of control? Is it higher than other countries? And it should be done real time. It should be monitored and looked at, not come to this huge moment. And that's the problem I have is that we have all these administrators and bureaucrats. What do they do? I don't know what they do. That's why they're bureaucrats, Bonnie. That's exactly their job description. We need to go out there and do something where people ask, what do you actually do? Why do we have these layers of bureaucracy there just to hide the transparency? There's a lot of people out there saying, if we make this as complicated as we possibly can, so nobody can trace all the different cobwebs and, and, and all this different complexity, nobody knows what question to ask. And sure as hell, nobody knows the answer to it. But they're all going to point fingers at the boogeyman over here. And I think that's where a lot of pharmaceutical companies maybe willfully have occupied that spot saying, well, yeah, okay, we're not going to really stick up for ourselves because we're otherwise we look like victims. So give me this last couple of minutes here. You know, where's, where's Lantern going from here? Where are you guys uh, about to hit your, your inflection point, just blast off to the moon? Where are you guys going? Yeah, when we, when we went public, we had three drug programs in our pipeline, one for metastatic castration resistant prostate cancer. Uh, one for non-small cell lung cancer and never smokers, it's a very unique population that gets lung cancer. It's almost about 18% of the U.S. population now, and one in glioblastoma. So these are all very undermet conditions in cancer with clinical need. We had three programs. Today, we have eight. This is in a period of less than 15 months from going public at a cost of less than, we burned probably less than $10, $11 million that year. So that's pretty much unheard of. To go from three programs to eight uh, that would have been a big biopharma cost, 50 to $100 million. We did that in one-fifth the cost and probably less than half the timeline. So I think we're going to continue at a pace of innovation that'll hopefully set a standard for the rest of our, our peer group and our industry. And our goal is to bring these drugs through clinical phases using our technology and our approach, and then partner with bigger biotech and bigger pharma and hopefully pass on the savings and, and use this as a new model. We really think that our approach can be a new model of how uh, drugs get developed. And part of our answer is to repurpose and part of our answer is totally, totally new de novo development. So, and I think this can be a model for how we fundamentally bring drug pricing down, not through controls and mechanisms, because at the end of the day, if making a pair of jeans costs you 80 bucks, you can't be expected to sell them forever for only 84 or 90. You got to make them for 10 bucks. And you know, at the end of the day, that's you know, it's just math 101. If a drug costs you a billion to three billion to make, yes, it's going to be quite challenging to accept drug pricing as, as, as a model. And then what you're going to do is you're going to stymie innovation. So we're addressing the fundamental problem, which is product development costs have to be crushed using technology. And once you do that, then opens up real doors for innovation and real doors most important thing, which is reducing burden on the healthcare system. Anna Sharma, CEO, Lantern Pharma. Thanks so much for joining us here on Healthcare Americana. I wish you guys the best of luck. Look forward to following your trajectory. Thank you, Chris. Thanks for having us on. Once again, I'm your host, Chris Verhaebig. This is Healthcare Americana. Thanks for listening. Check out healthcareamericana.com to hear all our episodes, visit the shop, and learn more about the podcast. Healthcare Americana is produced by Taylor Scott and iPodcast Pro and managed by Melissa Turpin. Whether you're a patient, employer, or physician, the Free Market Medical Association can facilitate and assist you in your free market healthcare journey. The foundation of our association is built upon three pillars, price, value, and equality, with complete transparency in everything we do. 
Our goal is simple. Match willing buyers with willing sellers of valuable healthcare services. Join us and help accelerate the growth of the free market healthcare revolution. For more information on the Free Market Medical Association, visit fmma.org. Hi again, everyone. This is Chris. At Healthcare Americana, we're always on the lookout for great stories to tell in the healthcare industry. And we'd like to hear yours. Check out healthcareamericana.com and send us your ideas for episodes or if you'd like to be a guest. Thanks again for listening. Hope you enjoy it.